Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Frank Canton was not born. He was created. The mental fabrication of a notorious outlaw and escaped convict by the name of Joe Horner. After possibly killing his first man at the tender age of 15, Horner would spend the next several years as a cowboy before forming the infamous Horner Gang that would go on to terrorize North Texas during the mid-1870s. After a full-on gun battle with the United States military in broad daylight, Horner is arrested but escapes. And following the successful robbery of at least one bank, Horner was once more apprehended in jail, this time in San Antonio, and once more escaped. Arrested again after yet another gunfight, Horner would be tried, found guilty, and sentenced to 15 years hard labor in Huntsville State Penitentiary. He would only do two of these years, escaping once more, this time never to be seen again. At least not as Joe Horner. The escaped convict would travel north to Wyoming and reinvent himself, becoming Frank Canton, the epitome of law and order and a relentless pursuer of ne'er-do-wells. First as an inspector and detective for the Wyoming Stock Growers Association, and then sheriff of Johnson County, before becoming a key player in a little something called the Johnson County War. Canton would then mosey on down to Indian Territory and once again pin on a badge, first as a sheriff and then as a deputy U.S. Marshal, a la Rooster Cogburn. This was at a time when the territory was nearly overrun with outlaws, and the area Canton was initially stationed in was so bad that the county commissioners were asking for martial law. Turns out all they needed was Frank Canton. But then a new frontier beckoned, what some were taken to calling the last frontier. There was gold up there in the Great White North, and with gold comes crime. But what about Frank's past as an outlaw, the former life of Joe Horner, the escaped convict? Would this ever catch up with him? And was he really Mr. Law and Order, humble public servant, or was this just a facade, a way of him ensuring that he was always aligned with the powerful and influential? Believe me when I say that this story has it all. Cowboys, outlaws, moral quandaries, buffalo soldiers, female rustlers, questionable morals, cattle drives, stampedes, a damn range war, a mercenary army, assassinations, murder, a whole lot of hangings, Tom Horn, the Pinkertons, Teddy Roosevelt, hell, even vampires. Yes, vampires. So without further ado, let's dive into the man, the myth, the way underrated legend of Frank Canton. My name's Josh, and you're listening to the Wild West Extravaganza. Born in Henry County, Indiana, on September 15, 1849, Josiah, or Joe as he would be called, was the fifth of nine children. And in those early days, the Horners were perpetually on the move. Father Joe Horner was born in Virginia, married for the first time in Ohio, and the second time to Joe's mother Mary Jane in Baltimore. The couple moved to Iowa before settling down in Indiana, where Joe was born, and by 1854, the family could be found in Kansas City, Missouri. The following year in Topeka, Kansas, and by 1860, just in time for the Civil War, the Horners are residing in Ozark, Missouri. And despite being nearly 50 years old, the elder Horner enlisted, as did his oldest son, John Wesley Horner, both of them opting to serve with the Confederates. Now, John was a sawbones by trade, 
and he worked in said capacity as a military doctor throughout the war. At least he did until he was wounded and captured during the Battle of Mount Vernon in 1864. Once apprehended, Horner was taken to the dreaded Alton, Illinois POW camp, a true hellhole that I spoke of way back on the Alfred Packard episode. Considered to be the Andersonville of the North, around 11,000 prisoners were housed there, with nearly 1,500 of them perishing, one of whom was Joe's dad, John. But by then, the 14-year-old Josiah Horner was already serving as well. Kind of. He had run away from home in 1864, the same year his father was captured, and believe it or not, attempted to sign on with the Union Army in Springfield, Missouri. Obviously, he was too young, but he did have an uncle from his mother's side of the family there who was a Yankee lieutenant. Horner was soon taken on as sort of an unofficial orderly, caring for horses, cleaning guns, and stuff like that. There's no indication I can find, however, that he ever got so much as a whiff of combat during this short period. The war was winding down, the South was all but defeated, the end was nigh. I did find it very interesting, though, the fact that Joe would align himself with the Union when both his father and brother were fighting for the stars and bars. But this may be a very telling pattern that we will discuss later. At the war's end, a 15-year-old Horner was hired on as a teamster out of Fort Leavenworth, a job that possibly saw him kill his first man. Story goes that young Joe had an argument with his boss and smashed the poor bastard's head in with a neck yoke. Now, a neck yoke, if I'm not mistaken, is a wooden beam, usually around three or four feet long, used to harness a horse or team of horses. They're most definitely stout, and you could absolutely do some damage to a man's skull. But did this really happen? I'm usually dubious of such claims, and the source in this case is a judge, the son of the guy who secured the teamster job for young Horner. And per this source, Joe was tried for murder before a military tribune and acquitted. Now, the person he allegedly killed was the head teamster, a job vacancy which Horner now filled. Allegedly. And I suppose that's one way of moving up in a company. The teamster career wouldn't last long, however. Unlike Joe's father, his older brother John Wesley would survive the war. He returned home to Arkansas, packed up his mama and the remaining siblings, and headed to Texas. And apparently, Joe just happened to come back in time to make this trip with him. Guess his teamster job wasn't all that pressing and there was no lingering animosity between the brothers about them choosing different sides during the war. The family would settle in Denton County, just about 30 or so miles north of Fort Worth, but it's in nearby Jack County to the west that Joe Horner first took the cowboy in. He hired on with Christopher Carter's outfit and, along with the usual roping, riding, herding, and branding duties, Joe was also required to become one of the so-called Jack County Minutemen. A loosely regulated group formed in the early 1860s, the Jack County Minutemen would adopt the official motto of sorry, that usually doesn't happen. It's been a while. Uh, no, in all actuality, the Jack County Minutemen were a local militia group originally formed to protect settlers against Native American raids. If you remember back to the episode I did on Britt Johnson and the Searchers, many of those counties to the north and west of Dallas had been all but abandoned during the war. With the menfolk gone fighting back east, it opened up the frontier to the Kiowa and Comanche who made no qualms about crossing the Red River and making off some stock or scalps. These Minutemen were sort of a civilian quick reaction force to answer to these raids. They were not Texas Rangers, but to be fair, the job they were doing was, for all intents and purposes, the same. And in 1874, when the Texas Rangers Frontier Battalion was created, many of these Jack County Minutemen were sworn in. Not Joe Horner, though. Although you might come across a few sources that claim he was a one-time Texas Ranger, he was not. Uh, as you'll soon hear, Joe had more pressing matters at hand by the time 1874 rolled around. 
In the meantime, however, he would participate in his first cattle drive in the spring of 1868, one led by his buddy and fellow 19-year-old Samuel Burke Burnett. And yeah, if you've ever been to the big city of Burke Burnett, just north of Wichita Falls, this is the guy that the town's named after. He and Joe Horner, along with a handful of other cowpokes, would herd 1,500 Longhorn up to the Kansas railheads. And although successful, it's kind of comical how much bad luck they had along the way, much of it of their own making. First, they had to swim the cattle across the swollen Red River, which took all of four days. And then in Indian territory, they were approached by some Osage who demanded a toll. You want to pass through our land? Well, that'll cost you 50 beeves. Now keep in mind that these boys were young and brash. Joe and Burnett held counsel and quickly decided no, they dang sure would not pay these damn Osages tribute. They told them so in no uncertain terms and went upon their merry way. Or at least they tried to. Almost immediately, a couple hundred additional Osages materialized, sweeping down among the herd and taking their toll by force. Cowboys kept the cows moving, and luckily only five or six head were lost to the natives, along with their chuck wagon, which contained all their bacon and tobacco. Disaster averted, right? Well, not so quick. Later on that night, the Osage struck again, stampeding the herd. While the cowboys, some of them just wearing nothing but their long johns, rushed to attempt to turn the terrified cattle, the enterprising natives then made off with all the horses, leaving just two skinny nags for the entire outfit. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this, but a cowboy's job is much harder to do on foot, and them old high-heeled boots weren't exactly made for walking. What followed, Horner himself would later describe as the most difficult task he had ever experienced. With only two mounts, the remaining men of the outfit, Joe included, would have to trail the herd on foot all the damn way to Abilene, leaving their feet a bloody mess by the time they arrived. But they made it, mostly in one piece. And while the rest of the hands returned home to Texas, Joe Horner stayed behind. I'm not 100% sure what he was up to in the Queen of Cattle Towns, but I'm willing to bet he weren't conducting no Bible studies. Horner was a healthy 19-year-old, and I'd wager good money that he learned all about venereal diseases during his prolonged stay there in Abilene. He also developed a strong liking for liquor, a vice that would plague him for much of his adult life. That said, Joe would not blow all of his hard-earned money on women and whiskey. He did have the foresight to invest in a brand new 44 caliber Winchester rifle, which, from what I read, was an improvement over the much-celebrated Henry Rifles. In due course, Horner would sign on with another cow outfit and help herd 2,500 head up to the town of North Platte in present-day Nebraska. Just like the previous herd, this one would also be stampeded, with nearly 300 head of cattle being taken by rustlers. Joe and a few other hands were dispatched to find the missing cattle, which they did, meeting a Lakota war party along the way and scaring away the thieves in the process. Other than this little excitement, the drive went off without a hitch, and by 1869, Horner would be back home in familiar territory, once again punching Texas cattle for old Chris Carter. Although Joe would continue doing ranch work for the next few years, as far as I was able to determine, these were the only big cattle drives that he participated in. Partnering up with a friend named William Cottenham, the two would follow a claim on a spread of their own over there in Jack County, just a few miles north of Jacksboro, and even secured a contract to supply beef to nearby Fort Richardson. All in all, things are looking good, despite losing quite a few horses to the Native Americans, but evidently Horner could give as good as he could get in that regard, openly admitting to conducting raids of his own and making off with plenty of Indian ponies. This sadly was a common practice in those days, technically illegal, but nobody on the frontier was going to bat an eye, much less try to prosecute you for it. And I say sadly because such theft would only exasperate matters between the natives and the settlers in a time when relations were already tenuous to say the least. 
But as far as Joe Horner is concerned, his wild side is just starting to emerge, right? And where he lived, Jacksboro, Texas, was about as wild a town as you could find in the early 1870s, largely due to Fort Richardson. If you heard the series I did on Wild Bill Hickok, link in the show notes, maybe you'll remember how crazy things were in Hayes City with all them soldiers coming in from nearby Fort Hayes. Well, Fort Richardson and Jacksboro had the same type of relationship. The town catered to the soldiers with an abundance of gambling and drinking establishments, and according to one early resident, quote, I am not exaggerating when I say I have seen the time I could have walked on soldiers lying dead drunk along the road from the south side of the square to the creek and not touch the ground, end quote. And Joe Horner was there for it. He even invested in the saloon for a little bit. Now we're talking the early 1870s, so 1872-73. Joe would have only been around 23-24 years old. He's employed mostly as a cowboy, at least on paper, but he somehow has the capital to put money into a saloon and his own ranch. I suppose it's very possible that he was a frugal, shrewd young man who lived simply and within his means, and he just saved up all his hard-earned money. It's also very possible, and more likely than not, that he was already figuring out that taking property that didn't belong to him was not only easier than ranch work, but a whole lot more profitable. And we're not talking Indian ponies anymore at this point. He and the previously mentioned Bill Cottenham formed a gang of sorts, aptly named the Horner Cottenham Gang. And initially, this was just a group of young hellraisers spending more time in town drinking and gambling than they did on the range. But as time went on, they began to garner quite a bit of suspicion as far as stolen livestock was concerned. Seems Joe Horner and his bunch always had cattle for sale when their neighbors were coming up short. And in 1874, when the safe was stolen out of the Jacksboro post office, it was these good old boys who became the prime suspects. And they might have even gotten away with it too had a pesky pig farmer turned scout named Henry W. Strong not lost over $1,000 of his own money in the heist. Just a few months older than Horner, Strong turned to scouting for the army after the hog venture petered out, supposedly helping Colonel McKenzie lay out the trail bearing his name that previous winter. By the late 1870s and early 1880s, Strong would be moving back and forth between Wichita and Hood Counties, Texas, running sheep. But for our current timeline, when that safe was stolen, Henry Strong is still hanging around Fort Richardson as a scout. And he wasn't really all that keen on letting his money just up and disappear like that. He, like everybody else, reckoned it was the Horner Cottenham gang. And sure enough, this intuition soon proved accurate. Gang member Horace Jeffries, then going by the alias Henry Jones, was found passing off some counterfeit cash from the safe. Marked bills purposely put there to help identify any potential rapscallions. As such, in March of 1874, Strong set out with a very inexperienced deputy U.S. marshal to arrest Jeffries. And when I say inexperienced, the lawman in question, Wiley Lovejoy, was really just a clerk of the dry goods store who, for reasons I have yet to ascertain, held a U.S. deputy marshal's commission. His experience arresting bad guys, however, was non-existent, hence him calling on Strong for assistance. And when he and Strong confronted Jeffries and told him to surrender, the suspected thief said he'd do no such thing and went for his iron. A scuffle broke out with Deputy Lovejoy grabbing the pistol in Jeffries' hand, while at the same time, Strong gets a hold of Jeffries by the back of his coat. By the time Lovejoy wrenches the revolver away, Jeffries takes off running. And what happens next truly boggles the mind. The inexperienced Deputy Wiley Lovejoy actually chunked the loaded pistol towards the fleeing Jeffries. I don't know if he was aiming for the back of the guy's head or what, but the outlaw sees this, stops running, picks the gun up, and opens fire. Luckily, Henry Strong kept his cool and was able to fire back, killing the outlaw deader in hell. 
No thanks to Deputy Lovejoy. Wow. Uh, not sure if this is something that's taught at the police academy or not, but if by chance you're able to forcibly remove a loaded firearm from a suspect, it's probably not a great idea to then throw said firearm at them, at least not with the bullets still in the gun. Anyway, the dead Jeffries had friends, friends like Joe Horner, and he and Cottenham and them others didn't much like having one of their own shot down in the street like a dog. That said, either Henry Strong had nine lives or the notorious Horner-Cottenham gang were just horribly ineffective when it came to assassinations, which also may be a bit of foreshadowing of things to come. Several attempts were made on Strong's life in the months that followed Jeffrey's death, usually with shots being fired at him from the cover of darkness, but luckily for him, they all missed their mark. These failed attempts, however, would prove to be all the inspiration Strong needed to continue to help take down the gang. More on that in just a moment, but I should state that we can't prove for certain that Joe Horner took part in any of these assassination attempts. Even though Strong was very vocal that it was Joe, we only have his word to go by. That said, history does paint a pretty good picture of what Horner was up to at the time, as just a few weeks prior to the Strong Jeffries gunfight, he went and got himself arrested and charged with aggravated assault. Seems Joe pistol whipped some old boy in a saloon, at least that's what I think he did. I actually have the official arrest record, but it's so convoluted it's hard to make out. I'll read it to you in full, just try to keep up. Quote, in and upon the person of Ed Harris with a certain pistol, which was then and there loaded and charged with gunpowder and leaded balls, and was then and there a deadly weapon, which said pistol he, the said Joseph Horner, in his hand then and there had and held at, to, against and upon the said Ed Harris, with the intent to injure unlawfully and violently, did make an aggravated assault and battery, for that he, the said Horner, did then and there threateningly, unlawfully, and violently draw upon and present the said pistol at the said Harris and many other wrongs then and there did. End quote. And holy fucking shit. <laughs> if you want proof that autism existed prior to the 20th century, there you go. Alright? Uh, if you're hearing this and you have an Adderall prescription, please email me with the translation. But it does sound to me like Joe either pistol whipped this Ed guy or he simply just beat the hell out of him and then pulled out his gun and threatened to finish the job. But good lord, man. I love how thorough the guy writing this was until the very end. He was just like, oh yeah, and there were many other wrongs uh, then and there. Okay. Anyway, Joe Horner gets arrested for assault and then on top of all that, he gets indicted on two cases of cattle theft. As I alluded to earlier, he and Cottenham were routinely delivering cattle to Fort Richardson that probably was not theirs to sell. For some reason, Joe's herd always stayed the same size no matter how many cows he sold, and the neighboring ranches were always coming up short. And if all this wasn't enough, Joe Horner then goes and gets in a shooting fight with the damn United States Army. Just goes to show how wild he was in stark contrast to the very law and order persona he'd acquire later in life. But before we discuss that, let's take a quick break for a word from this episode's sponsor. Welcome back. Now, the fighting question between Horner and the Army occurred there in Jacksboro on October 10, 1874. Joe was just a month into his 25th year and facing trial on three counts in the weeks to come when he and an associate, Frank Lake, delivered a small herd to the fort. After taking care of business, Joe then retired to a nearby saloon to quench his thirst, where he was accosted by several of the black troopers stationed at the fort, who demanded that he buy them a round of drinks. Horner refused, words were exchanged, and men went for their weapons. Now keep in mind that this is Joe's version of what started the fight. There's very little in the way of hard details when it comes to this scrap, 
but Horner would leave a private George Smith bleeding on the floor as he made his way to another drinking establishment. Shortly thereafter, a small detachment of six soldiers arrived in town to apprehend Horner, but to loosely paraphrase Kurt Russell in Tombstone, Joe made it clear that he wasn't going to let anybody arrest him on that day. Guess he was feeling frisky. And this refusal led to a full-on gun battle right there in the street between Joe Horner and the Buffalo Soldiers. A friend, Joe Watson, joined Horner as the two opened up fire on the approaching cavalry troopers. Horner emptied his six guns before hopping on his pony and shucking his Winchester from the scabbard, slowly and coolly moving his horse back and forth across the thoroughfare, firing at the soldiers who had, by this time, been reinforced. At least he did until his horse got shot out from underneath him. Running low on ammo, Joe then rushes to the hardware store to retrieve some more, but by this point his buddy Lake had heard the shots and come a-running, wisely convincing Joe that they needed to skedaddle. Reluctantly, Horner agrees and hops up in the saddle behind Lake as the two make their getaway. Now that soldier from the saloon, the first one that Joe shot, was not fatally wounded. He would survive. Another soldier from the battle in the street would not be so lucky, taking one of Horner's rifle slugs right between the eyes. The Buffalo soldiers would pursue the two men out of town and engage them in more gunplay, resulting in Lake getting shot in the thigh and Horner leaving him behind as he made his getaway on Lake's horse, riding like the devil for his older brother's ranch where he'd lay low for a while. Now you know how this shit goes. This is only one version of the story. Frank would later recall that the army had recently killed his friend Cottenham, and knowing that he'd be looking to even the score, the soldiers made moves to kill him before he could exact his revenge. Per his recollections, he was simply enjoying a nice peaceful dinner in town at a restaurant, not drinking in a saloon, when the soldiers waylaid him. This was not true, at least not the part about Cottenham. While he would soon disappear, he was still alive at the time of this gunfight. Matter of fact, he'd testify on Horner's behalf in an upcoming trial. Joe also claimed to have killed two or three of the troopers, which is also false. Although, I guess in his defense, he may have thought he killed two or three at the time. Like I said earlier, the first guy Horner shot was not fatally wounded. Per official military records, the soldier in question is just listed as being quote-unquote sick in the days that followed. And the man Joe shot between the eyes was a recently discharged soldier who, according to one source, was not even actively taking part in the battle. He was just in the wrong spot at the wrong time and caught himself an unlucky bullet. No record of anyone else being shot or killed other than Lake, of course, with that thigh wound. Hell, the army wouldn't even pursue charges against Horner. As for what actually started the hostilities, well, surprise, surprise, it could have been racially motivated. Joe Horner, years later, when discussing the Buffalo soldiers in general, would say, quote, They were of no benefit to the settlers and absolutely no protection to them. I never knew a black soldier to kill an Indian while they were in the country, but I have known them to kill some pretty good white men. End quote. Well, the historical evidence does say otherwise. Per William H. Leckie's book, The Buffalo Soldiers, between September and December of 1873, the 10th Cavalry out of Fort Richardson had at least a dozen fights with the indigenous. They also killed four white horse thieves and captured 17 others, in addition to retrieving 1,200 head of stolen animals. Could it be that the pretty good white men Horner was describing were also horse thieves? Maybe especially considering his extracurricular activities during this period. Truth is, there was a lot of racial tension there in Jack County when these events unfolded. I know, I know, we hate hearing about this. Here I go being all woke again. But this is interesting to me at least, and it adds context to the story. 
So just log off 4chan for a minute and stop masturbating to the life-size cutout of Nathan Bedford Forrest and Pepe the Frog and hear me out. You might learn you something. Back in August of 1872, before the 10th Cavalry was assigned to Fort Richardson, there was a fight in a nearby segregated black community on Lost Creek. The citizens were having themselves a dance when some white soldiers showed up and crashed the party. This resulted in gunplay, leaving one soldier wounded and another dead. The next day, in retaliation, several troopers showed up, along with the Jacksboro blacksmith, to, quote, kill every Negro they could find. The black citizens, expecting trouble, had fled, so these vigilantes had to settle on just killing one of them, an elderly man who stayed behind, whom they shot dead on the spot. And once the men of the 10th were stationed at the fort, things didn't get no better. One former soldier and Jacksboro citizen, H.H. McConnell, would say that the locals had, quote, little use for the black soldiers, and in fact, the white soldiers hadn't either. They looked upon them as a necessary evil, end quote. Another resident, Thomas Horton, went further when it came to the men of the 10th, stating, quote, They were haughty, impudent, and insulting. They usually came to town in bunches of 30 to 40. The private citizens had no protection from them, and if one happened to say, he uses a racial epitaph here, in the hearing of one of these groups, he was grossly insulted and against such numbers had to endure their scoffing, end quote. Gosh, man, can you believe that? You know how fucking dare these troopers have the absolute gall to, number one, come to town and enjoy themselves the way that United States soldiers, sailors, and Marines literally everywhere have done since the beginning of forever. And two, not just let people call them whatever they wanted without saying something about it in return. The fucking nerve. I mean, they got their freedom. What else could they want? To be treated decently as human beings or to not be called every offensive name in the book and then look down upon if they attempt to stand up for themselves? <laughs> Now, I'm obviously joking, but that was the mentality of many at the time. Hell, the Texans, by and large, had to be forced to grant slaves their freedom after the war. To think that they would respect these soldiers and treat them as equals was not a possibility in that day and age. Just a sad truth about the times. As such, local public sentiment was on Joe Horner's side. You know, he may have been a half-assed outlaw, but in this particular instance, he was their outlaw. And as far as the citizens of Jacksboro were concerned, Horner was in the right. This may have also been partly why the military did not pursue charges against him. The district attorney, on the other hand, had had enough of Joe's shit. In addition to the other assault charge and the cattle rustling charges, Horner was now facing the additional charge of assault with intent to murder. He would be arrested on November 27th and released the same day on bail, with a trial scheduled for February of 1875. But this development would not slow down Horner's outlaw activities. In January, just a month before the trial, he was accused twice more of stealing cattle, and when he finally did appear before the court, he had a total of six indictments against him. Still, though, Joe does not serve any time in jail as the trial would be postponed as the court tried to locate and serve summons on state and defense witnesses. In the meantime, Horner's bail goes up a significant amount more than he alone could afford, and he had to scramble to find people willing to put up money to keep him free. Skip ahead to September of 1875, and one of his benefactors withdraws his surety commitment, meaning the money he put up for Joe's bond, and as such, the Jack County Sheriff orders Joe's arrest. He's then placed in the jail over in Graham, Texas, about 25 miles to the west. Horner would only stay locked up a total of four nights, however. On September 13th, a couple hours before the ass crack of dawn, Four men busted him out, cutting the telegraph lines as they rode out of town. Now, by escaping from jail like this, Joe Horner is no longer just a hard-working cowboy with a wild streak. 
He's now a wanted man and committed fully to the outlaw life, and as such, he went forward with a gusto. The San Antonio Daily would soon report that Joe was in charge of a, quote, band of desperados and outlaws operating between Sherman and Griffin. And Texas Ranger D.W. Roberts would state that Joe and his brother George, quote, went on a robbering and murdering expedition, end quote. I did have a difficult time finding particulars here, as far as the robbing and murdering was concerned. It seems that Joe's reputation was a little bit meaner than his actual actions, at least the ones that we can prove. And as tends to be the case, every robbery and shooting within a couple hundred miles was placed squarely on his shoulders, whether he participated or not. Per the author Robert K. Diarment, in his book Alias Frank Cannon, quote, No records of rewards offered for Horner or of murder indictments filed against him have been found in Texas but a persistent rumor that he was responsible for the vicious murder of an elderly couple during this period became part of his legend, end quote. Crime spree or not, and rumors of murders aside, it wasn't until January of 1876 that the Horner gang would attempt their first big score, the bank over in the city of Comanche, about 100 miles south of Jacksboro. And remember Henry Strong, that army scout? Well, he was still on the gang's tail. He was absolutely convinced that the outlaws would continue to try to assassinate him. And, well, a man can only get lucky so many times. Strong figured his best bet was to get them before they put him under. As such, he tracked the boys all the way to Comanche and was actually hiding in an alley as they robbed the bank. Strong got a positive idea on all of them and led the posse that immediately went in pursuit. They tracked the outlaws nearly 200 miles before their trail went cold. Posse turned back home, but Strong did not continuing on alone to San Antonio. He alerted Bear County authorities, and sure enough, when Joe Horner rode into town on February 2nd, he was quickly arrested, as was his brother George. And for a little over a year, the Horner brothers would rot there in San Antonio's quote-unquote bat cave, the old jailhouse and military plaza that also doubled as a courthouse. Now, if you listen to the episode I just did titled An Execution Gone Wrong, about the supposedly haunted San Antonio jailhouse that's now a Holiday Inn Express, this is not it. That particular facility would not be built until 1878, and the Horner brothers got locked up in 76. The Bat Cave, where they were incarcerated, also doubled as a courthouse and was originally built in 1852. And this jail got its name due to the thousands of bats that made their home between the roof and the canvas ceiling. So many bats that they would have to drive them out with long poles before holding court. Now, I found that interesting enough, but what's even crazier is that during his stay there, Joe Horner allegedly began swearing off any and all mills containing garlic, saying that they made him, quote, uncontrollably and inexplainably ill. He also rejected mirrors in his tiny cell, breaking several of them before the jailers stopped replacing them. Years later, when Horner would be working as a range detective in Wyoming, it was not uncommon for him to avoid operating during daylight hours, opting instead to work in the dead of night. And, uh, yeah, I just made all that up. Joe Horner was not bitten by a bat, much less a vampire bat, during his stay at the old San Antonio jail, nor would he ever become a vampire, at least not that I'm aware of. But I wasn't there when he died, you know? Uh, maybe it was a wooden stake through the heart that finally did him in. Maybe it was a lichen. I don't know. Like I said, I wasn't there. And we may never know. Uh, the stuff about the jail being called the Bat Cave is true. I did not make that part up. And there still are a lot of bats in San Antonio to this day. So FYI, if you ever visit, according to Texas Parks and Wildlife, quote, the San Antonio River is home for many species of wildlife, 
Nestled under the I-35 bridge where it crosses the San Antonio River near Camden Street, a colony of approximately 50,000 male Mexican free-tailed bats roost during summer months. So there you go. Enough about the damn bats. Let's get back to Joe Horner, who probably was not a vampire. Joe would finally be tried for that bank robbery on March 15, 1877, and after a jury deliberation of just 25 minutes, Horner would be sentenced to 10 years of hard labor at the state penitentiary in Huntsville. If they could get him there. Just two weeks after the trial, Joe escaped jail again, Shawshank Redemption style. He and other inmates sawed through the plank lining of their cell and started tunneling through the stone wall. Each morning, they would hide the debris under their blankets, and they also partially sawed through their leg irons. Finally, the night came. He and his three cellmates squeezed through the opening as the tallest among them, a black prisoner named Perry Upson, helped boost them all up over on top of the wall. They had a blanket and some pants that they had rigged up into sort of a rope, and the idea was that once on top of the wall, they'd hang it over and haul Upson up with them. Or at least that's what they told him. Once these motherfuckers got on top of the wall, however, they forgot all about their companion, leaving him down below as they made their getaway. Joe's newfound freedom would be short-lived. He'd hold up a stagecoach due east of Eagle Pass just 16 days later and get himself recaptured that evening by a posse following a brief gunfight. Hauled back to jail, Horner ended up getting an additional 10 years tacked onto his sentence for this little escapade, which I believe was meant to be served congruently. He would make another attempt at escaping, working at his chains with a razor, but he got caught in the act and would ultimately be delivered to Huntsville on May 5th, 1877 where he became inmate 5920. And given his penchant for escape, I don't think it should come to anybody's surprise that Horner would only stay in prison just one day shy of 15 months. Back in those days, nearly 80% of the prisoners at Huntsville were working outside the walls, doing everything from picking cotton to railroad construction, even wood chopping. Joe got himself attached to one of these details, and on August 4th, 1879, the outlaw Joe Horner would simply disappear never to be seen again. I'll once more cite author uh, Robert D'Arment, who sums this up well and also adds a bit of mystique, writing, quote, His escape went unnoticed in the press and details, other than the date, were not recorded in prison files. Stories circulated years later that his escape had been arranged with prison officials by people of influence in Texas. Perhaps this was true. Newspapers that had previously printed every rumor of a Horner escape were strangely silent when he actually took flight. Stranger still, in 1886, the Adjutant General's Office of the State of Texas published a list purporting to enumerate every escaped convict from Texas State Penitentiaries from the beginning of the system. This list contained names, numbers, and descriptions of 1,752 escapees, but Joe Horner was not listed. In a sense, Joe Horner died in August of 1879. The desperado and outlaw disappeared, not only from the Texas penal system, but from the earth itself. The man who had murdered him, a man calling himself Frank M. Canton, would spend the remainder of his days trying to eradicate the memory of Joe Horner forever. End quote. You know, I'm not really sure why this sort of thing wasn't more common back in those days. This is before fingerprinting and DNA tests and all that. If you were a wanted man, there was a good chance there wouldn't even be a picture of you, just a description. I can't imagine not trying to escape and just starting over somewhere else. You get on the other side of that wall and you're in the free and clear. Stay away from your old haunts, change a few of your habits, maybe grow you a beard, and you're good to go. Nowadays, forget about it. It's nearly impossible unless you have a huge amount of disposable income. 
But even then, if you can figure out just a fraction of the ways you can be tracked, you're a damn genius. By the way, the M in Horner's new name, Frank M. Canton, stood for Melvin, according to his widow at the time of his death. And I don't know about you, but if I were to come up with an alias, it sure as hell would not include the name Melvin. Frank had him a whole legend and everything, a backstory. As for explaining his departure from the Lone Star State, Canton would say, quote, By the year 1878, Texas was comparatively quiet, too quiet to suit me. So I decided to try the Northwest Territory once more. I had a desire to return to that country ever since I had gone north with Burke Burnett in 69, end quote. Now, what exactly he got up to immediately following his escape is unclear. I suspect he did at least have some help leaving Texas, and I can only assume he did it as quickly as possible. We do know that by the year 1880, Joe Horner, who I'll now be referring to as Frank Canton, was working as a cowboy on the South Platte in Colorado. He helped drive several herds north to Wyoming and even worked the roundups around Cheyenne, making friends and powerful connections along the way before taking up work as a drover and stocking various ranges in the newly formed Johnson County, Wyoming. Situated southeast of the Bighorn Mountains in north-central Wyoming, just about 50 miles south of the Montana line, Johnson County was and is a cattleman's paradise. I mean, hell, they don't call Wyoming the cowboy state for nothing. Once Tough as Nails rancher Nelson Story pushed a herd all the way from Texas to Montana back in 1866, passing through the northern part of Johnson County, people knew it could be done. You know, if you had the guts and the grit to raise you a herd in Texas and traverse it all the way to Wyoming, Lonesome Dove style, you could homestead you a couple hundred acres and let the cattle graze on all that free federal land. Come springtime, you do a roundup, branding or earmarking all the new calves along with any other unbranded cattle you might find, a practice known as maverickin'. Let's face it, nobody knew exactly how many cows they owned after the long winter, and any unbranded calf was considered public property. It was that way down in Texas, and the Texans, who initially populated Wyoming, brought this practice with them. But these Texas cowboys weren't the only ones getting in on the ranching game. You had big money coming in. Some of it from back east, and some of it from as far away as Europe. Guys like Morton Freewin, born in England to a prominent family, this gentrified adventurer migrated to the United States, where, in 1881, he married a New York financier heiress, making him even more filthy rich than he already was. The couple would then move west to Johnson County, where he built an enormous and opulent log cabin slash castle on his ranch dubbed the Prince of Wells. Then you had Major Frank Walcott, veteran of the Civil War and one-time U.S. Marshal for the entire territory of Wyoming. Walcott used his money along with funding from Scottish investors to start the Valley Ranch, still largely intact to this day. The list goes on. Billy Irvine, Scottish-born John Clay, lots of other names we'll be discussing shortly. These men of influence soon organized the Wyoming Stock Growers Association, also known as the WSGA not also known as the Wyoming Stock Grower, Not a Shower Association. And that's something completely different, and my legal team urged me to make that clear. So there you go. Now, the WSGA had quasi-governmental status there in Wyoming, meaning they called a lot, if not all, of the shots. They could literally get laws passed. Hell, four of their members were U.S. congressmen, as were several governors over the years, and most of the damn Wyoming legislators. To quote author Bill O'Neill, like medieval nobles, they controlled vast domains, and like medieval nobles, they rode horseback, booted and spurred across their land. Other mounted men, the proud and picturesque cowboys, rode for them and tended their great herds. 
Masters of men and cattle and land, the big ranchers were also pioneers in an enormous, harsh, and nearly empty country. The cattle barons brought capital to Wyoming and provided economic, political, and social leadership. As Wyoming territory developed economically, the big cattlemen provided a great majority of that development, more than the railroads, the federal government, and the coal mining combined, end quote. So yeah, a very powerful and influential group. They also could and did blacklist other ranchers and cowboys. And by blacklist, I mean they could see to it that you could no longer work for one of them or even get your brands approved. In other words, they can make it very hard for you to earn a living. And if that's not bad enough, those who were blacklisted were also publicly rebuked as rustlers. Oftentimes, this was not the case. It's important to note that the cattle barons considered all that free to use federal land as their own, along with all the grass and water it contained. The smaller outfits coming in meant less grazing for their massive herds. Them who wouldn't kowtow or play ball were usually branded as thieves and rustlers, even if they had never stolen a cow in their entire life. The WSGA, by the way, is the same bunch that built the famous Cheyenne Club, a self-styled gentleman's club there in Cheyenne, Wyoming. And no, it was not that kind of gentleman's club. Also known as the Pearl of the Prairie, the Cheyenne Club was a very exclusive establishment, obviously, with capped membership and hefty dues. And the building itself boasted of two grand staircases, a wine vault, reading, dining, and smoking rooms, tennis courts, and even a bowling alley. It's where all the hooty-tooty folks got around and talked business, the type of place where people would, as my mamaw might say, put on airs. These western aristocrats weren't just in Wyoming for the fresh air and scenery. First and foremost, they were there to make money, and the cattle business was a-booming when Frank Cannon entered into the scene. And for whatever reason, he was drawn to these rich and powerful men. One of the books I leaned heavily upon when researching this series I've already mentioned, alias Frank Canton. In it, author Robert D'Armint asserts on more than one occasion that Canton made a conscious decision to ingratiate himself to such people. D'Armint writes in part that Frank, quote, greatly respected power in those who wielded it. He tried to exert his own power as an outlaw, but failed because, even on the unstable frontiers of Texas, the law and its enforcers were powerful enough to strike him down. At some point during his incarceration, he decided to take a different path. He would ally himself with the powerful instead of defying them, and by making himself useful to those who wielded power, would be protected by them and perhaps acquire some of that power for himself. End quote. D'Armint also posits the theory that this might explain why Canton aligned himself with the Union Army during the war, as opposed to following his father and brother to join the Confederacy. That was the telling pattern that I referred to earlier. Remember, when Frank tried to enlist, he was 14 years old and the war was nearing its end. Everybody knew the Union was going to win, and I guess the idea is that Canton, even as a kid, didn't want to sign on with the losing team, or even be associated with them. Likewise in Wyoming, the cattle barons were certainly the winners in life's big game, and they most definitely had all the power. Now, I don't know if this is purely speculation on Mr. D'Armint's part or what, but motivations notwithstanding, there's no denying the fact that Frank actively sought out and befriended his so-called betters. Guys like the aforementioned Morton Freewin and other WSGA members and politicians. He also cultivated friendships with many of the area lawmen, not just in Wyoming, but Montana as well. And this is before he ever pinned on a badge, so it wasn't just out of professional courtesy. With Canton making such powerful friends, it was only a matter of time before he was called into Cheyenne for a sit-down with Thomas Sturgis, 
secretary of the WSGA. The association offered Frank a job as a stock inspector, which he accepted, on August 22, 1881. This new job would have Canton moving all over the territory looking for any signs of cattle rustling, as well as helping to identify and verify ownership of cattle during the roundups and when the cattle were to be shipped to the buyers. And he had a huge swath of land to cover, not just Johnson County. From the best I can tell, the entire northeast corner of Wyoming was Frank's AO. From the Belfouche River west to the Tongue and from Fetterman all the way up to the Montana line. Canton would be on the move a fair amount of time, and since his responsibilities would require being able to make arrests, he was also given a commission as deputy sheriff of Johnson County. And very quickly, he became sheriff in everything but name, taking on the bulk of the responsibilities from the very overwhelmed first elected sheriff, Nate James, during his last year in office. Wasn't long before the WSGA gave Canton a raise from $90 to $150 a month, and he filed on his own homestead. 480 acres, several miles southwest of the town of Buffalo, the county seat. He even registered his own brand. So, as you can see, things were looking up for the former outlaw. And when his new friends urged him to run for sheriff, he did so, getting himself officially elected as Johnson County Sheriff in November of 1882. And that, I think, is a good stopping point for this episode. But we got a lot more ground to cover. Please join me next week as we discuss Frank Canton's time as sheriff his job as a detective for the WSGA and the build-up to the Johnson County War. Also, we will look more into the idea that Frank Cannon was possibly a vampire. You know, did cattle start coming up dead all over Wyoming with no visible signs of struggle other than two teeth marks on their necks? Maybe. I don't know. Look, I can't prove that Frank Cannon was a vampire, but you can't prove that he wasn't, and I think that's worth looking into. Seriously, please tune in next week. Uh, this tale is just going to get crazier and crazier, vampire shit aside, and I'm really surprised Ken isn't more of a well-known Old West figure. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please email me at josh at wildwestextra.com or head on over to my website, wildwestextra.com, and hit that contact button. And if you get a chance, sign up for my 100% free newsletter at wildwestjosh.substack.com or just email me and say that you want it. I got you, boo. Big thanks to all my supporters on Patreon and those who contribute via Buy Me A Coffee. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Hope you had an amazing Halloween. Hope you didn't get any fentanyl candy. Hope all you hunters out there are putting meat in the fridge, and I hope everybody's fantasy football teams are doing good. Till next time, try not to rob any banks. If you do and you get stuck in jail, try not to get bit by a bat. Adios. usually doesn't happen. It's been a while.